So Steve started today, uh, and he gave us some some very astute pastoral care techniques. And uh, and I was laughing when he said that, but then as he started to talk, I was like, oh my goodness, that that is just about perfect for what we're going to talk about today. Because the world needs prophets. The world needs someone who comes up and out of love tells you exactly what you need to hear without sugarcoating it, without it being for their agenda, without it being for your agenda, or your appeasement or, or relationship, that they just would speak from God truth. And yeah, truth and love, but truth. And that's what we're going to look at today. Before we do that, we know that what informs us forms us. And we have to believe that there's a story that we are supposed to be in. It's a story that is bigger than us. I know that's hard to believe sometimes, that the story we're in is bigger than just us. Because we are pretty much at times the center of our own universe. But the story is much bigger than that. And the beautiful thing about that is that that incredibly big story, we still have a place. And that story makes us bigger. So let's talk. So there's a little backstory. There's a lot of backstory uh, to get us caught up. We are in 1 Kings uh, chapters 11 through 13. We're going to jump around. We're not reading all of them, but we are reading quite a bit because I want to make sure that I get the story right. And the story starts with a guy named Solomon. And Solomon was the wisest man in history because God gave him this wisdom. And so Solomon ruled with this wisdom and he, he judged with this wisdom and he succeeded with this wisdom. But Solomon wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination because even with the wisdom of God, he was still a man. He was still driven by the same stuff that we are all driven by, acquisition, insecurity, lust. Here I'll get to the point. Solomon had seven Hundred wives. Seven hundred wives. I think that in and of itself disqualifies you from being the wisest man in history. Seven hundred wives. But he's not there. He's not done yet. On top of his seven hundred wives, he had three hundred concubines. Now this shouldn't surprise anybody. We're talking about a thousand voices, a thousand wants and needs, a thousand ways of doing things all around Solomon. And in verse 11 of, uh, or in verse 3, I'm sorry, of chapter 11 in 1 Kings, we read this, and his wives led him astray. Then it goes on, after his wives led him astray, Solomon's wives turned him away from God, and he began to build temples. He built a temple to Kamosh. He built a temple to Molech. And he built shrines for all the gods of all his wives. So let's just go to the far extreme. This means that in the kingdom of Israel, on the man who was appointed to be that king by God himself, there were a thousand shrines to lesser gods. Because that's what mama wants. And if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. I don't know about this wiseness or not. Verse 9. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude, 
and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Jeroboam now comes into the picture. Jeroboam was one of Solomon's officials. He was one of his staff, his whatever you want to call his cabinet. And we see later in the story that a prophet comes to Jeroboam. We jump down to verse 34. But I will not take the whole kingdom out. And he, this is what the prophet tells Jeroboam. This is God speaking through the prophet to Jeroboam. But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I choose and who obey my commands and decrees. I will take the kingdom from the son's hand and give you ten tribes. I will give you one tribe. I will give one tribe to his son so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I choose to put my name. However, as for you, I will take you, and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You, Jeroboam, will be king of Israel, over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands, as David, my servant, did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David, and he will give Israel to you, and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, because Solomon was ticked that he was going to have his kingdom taken away. But Jeroboam fled to Egypt, to Shishnak, the king, and stayed there until Solomon's death. So Solomon reigns until his death. And at his death, his son, Rehoboam, becomes king. In later years, Solomon had become increasingly oppressive and mean to his people. I don't know if that had anything to do with the 1,000 women that were around him all the time, but I'm pretty sure it had something to do with the 1,000 women who had led him astray and turned his heart from God, and he became a despot kind of ruler. It wasn't really that popular. And... In the later years, as he did that, he sees Jeroboam as a threat. He threatens to kill him, and Jeroboam goes away. But now we pick up the story that Jeroboam now has returned from Egypt because Solomon has died. And he goes to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, with the whole assembly of Israel. And he tells them this. Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor. And the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. So Jeroboam doesn't go in and go, look, you're about ready to lose the majority of your tribes, and I'm going to be the king over all of it. Jeroboam goes and tries to give counsel to Rehoboam. He said, look, your dad, your dad was really rough. Don't be so rough, and, and we'll follow you. We'll serve you. We'll, we'll, we'll let you be king. So Rehoboam consulted his father's elders, the older statesmen, and they replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. 1 Kings 12, 7. But Rehoboam rejects that advice and he consults with his peers, his, his followers, his friends, his tribe. And their advice 
was be tougher than your father. If they thought your dad was tough, wait till they get a load of you. Here's the response. When all Israel saw the king refused to listen to them, and they answered to the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's sons? To your tents, Israel. Let's go to war, Israel, is what they're saying. Look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. The Israelites hear that Jeroboam is back, the people as a whole hear that he is back, and they go to Jeroboam and they say, we want you to be king, because Rehoboam is harder than it's going to be harder than his dad. And Rehoboam hears this, so he prepares to fight against the rest of Israel to restore Israel. Verse 22, but this, the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, Say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, this is what the Lord says. Do not go up to fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. So they obeyed the word of the Lord and went home again as the Lord had ordered. And let that sit there for a second. It's a divided country. It's brother against brother. And God sends a prophet to the king who is stirring up all the trouble and says, stand down and go home. So now we have Jeroboam, who is the head over the majority of the tribes, and we have Rehoboam, who is the head over the house of David, and we're split. And so Jeroboam starts to get nervous. And Jeroboam, remember, God said, look, you, you listen to me, follow my commands, I'll make you successful. You won't have anything to worry about. But Jeroboam started to to hear kind of the rumblings. And he started to read the opinion polls. And he started to listen to all the news outlets. And his people were grumbling and they weren't happy. And he starts to worry that if his citizens aren't pleased with him, they might just try to kill him. So Jeroboam decides it's better to appease the masses than trust and obey God. So Jeroboam says, okay, here, you all love me if I do this. Here's two golden calves for you to worship. And this is how Israel came to find itself divided and ruled by two kings who didn't follow God. I'm just going to let that sit for a second. chapter 13. I'm telling you all this because there's the backstory, and that story has nothing to do with what we're talking about today other than I wanted you to know. That there was a time in history, I know it's hard for us to believe now, there was a time in history where people were divided about who should lead. And that division led to hatred and animosity and insecurity. And that animosity and insecurity and hatred led to wars and rumors of wars and hard talk and threats being made. Going on, verse 13. Here's where we're at today, and here's where it's about us. By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar that he had made to another God to make an offering. By the word of the Lord, he cried out against the altar. Altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priest of the high places who make offerings here and human bones will be burned on you. That same day, the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign 
The Lord has declared the altar will be split apart and ashes will be poured out. When King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Seize him! But the hand he stretched out towards the man shriveled up so that he could not pull it back. Also the altar, get this, was split apart and its ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God, by the word of the Lord. Then the king said to the man of God, Intercede with the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. So the man of God interceded with the Lord and the king's hand was restored and became as it was before. Then the king said to the man of God, Jeroboam speaks to the prophet and he says, come home with me for a meal and I will give you a gift because Jeroboam is really happy that this guy got God to give him his hand back. Verse 8. But the man of God answered the king, even if you were to give me half your possessions, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water here. For I, have command, for I was commanded by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. So he took another road, and he did not return by the way he had come to Bethel. So here's, a, here's the prophet. He gives the hard news to Jeroboam. Jeroboam rebukes that hard news. Jeroboam is stricken with a withered hand. He prays. He, asks, he doesn't ask God directly. He says, prophet, go to your God and see if you can fix it my hand. The prophet does. The hand is fixed. And Jeroboam says, you are the neatest thing since sliced bread. I want you to be a part of my kingdom. Come in. I could use a guy like you around. And the guy said no. Because God had commanded him not to. Here's the first thing I need you to, to realize and, and where we've gone off track. Godly witnesses are not swayed by the enticement of power, by population, by attendance, by popularity, by any of that. Godly witnesses are not swayed by anything that is not of God. And here's the thing. Our faith and our witness is useless if it can be bought. tell you that I feel like I'm a prophet, but I, I can't be quiet anymore about some stuff. So you filter out where it comes from. Our faith and our witness is useless it can, if it can be bought, and we have bought into some pretty useless stuff. We've hitched our wagons and our worship to the wrong places. Verse 11. Now, there was a certain old prophet living in Bethel whose sons came and told him all the man of God had done there that day. They also told their father what he had to say to the king. And their father asked him, which way did he go? And his sons showed him which road the man of God from Judah had taken. So he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. And when they had saddled the donkey for him, he mounted it. And he rode after the man of God. And he found him sitting under an oak tree. And asked, are you the man of God who came from Judah? I am, he replied. So the prophet said to him, come home with me and eat. 
The man of God said, I cannot turn back and go with you, nor can I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. I have been told by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water there or return by the same way you came. So this guy's doing great. He's consistent. He's staying the course. But here's the thing we need to know about the enemy. The enemy is persistent. And here's this old prophet. And this old prophet, he probably never got to talk to anybody more than, uh, uh, I don't know, two or three people in his lifetime. He didn't get the big crowds. He wasn't, he wasn't what they considered a, a, a celebrity or anything by stretch of the imagination. And he said, you know, I haven't done a whole lot. I don't have the big numbers that some of these other prophets have. This is my chance. If I can get the guy to heal the, the king's hand to, to be with me, then maybe I can carry over that. When someone asks him for dinner, he's, he's persistent with him. Here's what his answer was to the prophet's refusal. The old prophet answered, I too am a prophet, as you are. And an angel said to me by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. Let's stop just for a second sitting on my notes, but you need to hear this. God will never tell someone else to tell you something that goes against what God has told you. Let me do that again. God will never bring someone else to tell you something that God has told them to tell you that goes against what God has already told you to do. This is what's happening here. And then if you read, there's little parentheses. He says, bring him back. This is what the Lord said, the word of the Lord said to me. Bring him back with you to your house so that they may eat bread and drink water. But he was lying to him. And he was lying to him because he was trying to leverage him. He was trying to make him a part of something that he was trying to grow. So 19. So the man of God returned with him and ate and drank in his house. What do we do with this? Well, here's this. Anybody can say they have been given a word from the Lord. Now I want you to be really bold from now on. Because I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to say that 95%, 98%, 99.9% of the times that somebody comes up to you and says, I have a word from the Lord for you, the answer out of your mouth should be, no, you didn't. No, you don't. Now, that's not to say that sometimes God will speak through somebody else to you, but you need to then, it's like Ronald Reagan said, trust but verify. You don't follow it blindly. You don't follow it blindly. Because anybody can say they've been given a word of the Lord. Look, I can print, I've told you this before, I can print a business card that says I'm the King of England. I can go to your door, knock on it, have you open it, hand you the card, say, hi, I'm John Porter, I'm the King of England. Does that mean you're the King of England? No! This makes me a fool of the things he is. Anybody can say they've been given a word from the Lord. And we are surrounded by false prophets. And the most dangerous false prophets are the ones who promise us exactly what we want to hear. I'm not worried about the prophets that tell us. <laughs> so I see what Steve was telling the story. Like I, I go to this doctor. He's, he's Indian. He's of Hindu descent. He's very blunt. Well, John, here's your problem. You're fat. Oh, can I get a second opinion? And you're not very attractive. Okay. Huh. Right? But he's right. 
The most dangerous prophets are the ones who tap into what we want to hear and then tell us that that's what God told them to tell you. The most dangerous ones are the ones who promise us exactly what we want to hear. But I want you to look at God's word right here and realize that sometimes prophets lie. While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old man, the old prophet who had brought him back. This is after they had eaten and drinking, exactly against what God had told the prophet that went to Jeroboam to do. The old prophet then is struck, and the word of God came through him, and he cried out to the man of God who had come from Judah. This is what the Lord says. You have defied the word of the Lord and have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. You came back and ate bread and drank water in the place he told you not to eat or drink. Therefore, your body will not be buried in the tomb of your ancestors. I'm just imagining that the old prophet, when the word of God came to him and he spoke it, he had this look on his eyes like, Oh my goodness, this is real and this is God speaking and he's going to find me out and he just says the truth. So the prophet, man of God, he finishes his dinner, he saddles up, and he rides off, and a little ways down the road, he gets killed by a lion. So what do we do with all this? Well, here's the first thing. You need to realize that it wasn't the lion that killed him. It wasn't the lion that killed the prophet. It wasn't a coincidence that after this prophet, this old prophet said, hey, you're found out. You broke your covenant with God. It was no coincidence that it just so happened that a lion came up and killed the guy on the road. It wasn't a coincidence. It was disobedience. It was this. It was the prophet, the man of God's hunger. He put the bread before he put God first. This is what we talked about last week. The bread got ahead of God. Now, if you're like me, when you read this, this is the first thing that I come up to every time I get this, which means that God needs to work on me with it. And if you've ever had kids, you've heard this. I'm reading this, and I'm like, wait a minute. This old prophet, he flat out lied to this guy to get him to come eat with him. And now the, the guy that he came and ate, now he's the one who's been, well, what about the guy who lied? What about the lying prophet? What about him? <laughs> what about him? That's not what the story's about here. There's a scene after Jesus is resurrected and he meets the disciples on the beach and Peter finally recognizes Jesus and comes back and is restored three times before they have breakfast together. And after Jesus restores him three times and tells him to love him and tells him he feeds his sheep, Peter is so caught up in the moment that he sees John doing something and his jealousy for John goes, well, what about that guy? To Jesus. This is after Jesus had restored him three times. What about that guy? John chapter 21, verse 21 through 22 says this. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Now, it's easy to look. Now, what about this guy? What about that guy? What about them? What about them? Well, that's why I get so angry. That's why I get so coarse. That's why I fight like they fight. What about them? What about them? Them is not your worry. Them is not your enemy. 
Them is not your battle. Them is just going to be them. And them's going to have to take care of it on their own with God. But it's not you. And the amazing part that, that Peter it, it just becomes so much like us immediately after Christ does something amazing for him. Well, what about this guy? You think Jesus wanted to look at him and go like, look, if, if all your friends jumped off a building, would you jump off the building? Because that's what it is right here. So I'm not worried about the other guy. What about you? What about you? Look, this was thrown around a lot last week or so. 2 Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And all God's people said, Amen. But cover your shins because here comes the fun part. The humility in this verse is the catalyst to everything. The humbling of ourselves. The people who call ourselves by his name Christian the humbling is what leads to being able to hear God the humility is what leads to be able to have that relationship the humility is what leads to forgiveness the humility is what leads to the healing and it's not a corporate humility and it's not about the guys on the other side of the aisle Corporate humility will never happen without personal humility. You can have speeches or slogans and you can agree or disagree or whatever you want to do, but we're not going to have unity without humility. So here's what I want to tell you. We got this old prophet who lied to get the guy to come to his house so he could get some of his mojo and make himself feel good. He lied. He should be punished. Yes, he should. Is that your business? No, it's not. So here's what you need to do. Tend your own garden. You don't like the way the world looks right now. You don't like the way the nation looks right now. You're, you're not alone. Matter of fact, that's the only thing we're unified in. Nobody likes it. Have you heard one person go, I think this is great. I think we're doing awesome. Nobody. But when we talk about unity, it's not unity, it's just making sure that everybody thinks like we do. Tend your own garden. You want that? You want that healing? You want that forgiveness? You want God to move in our land? It starts with you. It starts with me. It starts with looking in the mirror and going, this is where I am not with you, God. This is where I'll go and have lunch or dinner with somebody you told me not to just because I think it's okay and there's no way. Or I'll follow somebody who has the most outlandish claims just because they say Jesus is Lord. Tend your own garden. What's Casey say, Becca? Mind your own biscuits and life will be gravy. So let's recap where we're at because I'm landing this. Here we go. The wisest man in history is led astray by, by a thousand women. The wisest man in history. I mean, that's the, he was given the wisdom of God. He ruled with the wisdom of God until he didn't. The wisest man in history was led astray. So look, it's not asking too much 
that our leaders follow God. It isn't. And we should be. And we should be praying that they do. It is not asking too much that our leaders follow God. But my goodness, is it foolish to assume that they are just because they say so and we want desperately to believe them. Look, folks, this will wake up for the church and it has been. You cannot have a true conclusion based on a false premise. And character matters. And we're surrounded by prophets who will tell us whatever we, they think we want to hear so that we will give them our vote, our money, our confidence, our allegiance. Here's the wake-up call for the church from the book of Ephesians. Oops. Hold on. So Christ, this is verse 11. So Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for the work of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach, oh, here's a word for you, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become more mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Before I read verse 14, let me just say, we ain't mature yet. And the bride of Christ has spent, I don't know how many decades, sounding like some hyped up teenager that's been mixing Red Bull and Mountain Dew and staying up all night. And we just want what we want. Verse 14, when we have that maturity, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every aspect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I don't know if you you like hearing the message. But I like giving it. We fail as Christians when we settle for a that's close enough gospel. That's almost what Jesus had in mind. That's really close. It's a lot better than those guys. It's a lot better than we were. We fail every time we settle for that's close enough. Christians should now do what they should have done for the past four years, for the past eight years, for the past 24 years, for the past four decades. Christians should do what they've always done. They should support policies that align with Christian principles and oppose and criticize policies that do not. But in everything else and with that, they give grace. No president deserves blind support or categorical rejection. Jeroboam was God's man. Jeroboam had a moment where he trusted man more than he trusted God, and he became no longer God's man. And there's something to be learned there. The holy man of Judah was unwavering in his obedience 
to God when the danger was the greatest. When he's standing right there in front of Jeroboam and the altar is split in half and ashes coming out, just like God told him, it was easy for the man of God to say, nope, can't have dinner with you because God said not to. It is easy for us to be vigilant in our faith in our faith when we are faced with danger. But when the thought of danger had passed, and he thought he was safe, and he thought he was in safe company, the man of God took his foot off the gas, took his hand off commitment, and he let down his guard. Too often we are vigilant in the presence of our enemies and lax in the company of who we think are our allies. The greatest threats come when we loosen our commitments to God's commands that seem to constrain us from our taking in the normal pleasures that everyone else does. Well, he said this about me, so I'm going to say this, or they did this, or they did that, or everybody cheats. That's when the great threat comes. When we think that we need the constraints of God taken out off of us so we can have the normal pleasures that everyone else Enjoys, But God never called us to be normal. He didn't even call us to be right. He called us to be righteous. That's when we talk about Jesus getting bread and telling the devil that man should not live by bread alone. Do you realize that in the Lord's Prayer, the way he prays, and I didn't realize this really until afterwards, it kind of hit me. There's a line in the Lord's Prayer that says, this is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And lead us not into temptation. I'm realizing that what God is saying is that our prayer should be, we need to come to you first thing to say, what sustains us today? You give us the bread. Because when we go out and get the bread on our own, we end up in temptation. But when you give us the bread, you are led. We are led not into that. Christ first, and then bread. Let's pray. Father God, make us wise. Make us committed. We can't just be a little bit following you. It's all or nothing. Lord, there are a lot of prophets that are out competing for our ears. And some of them, man, they sound so good. It's great. Gosh, why did you make us that it was so appealing to just be angry sometimes or to be grumpy or, or to, to point fingers or to judge others? Why did you make that feel so good if we weren't supposed to do it? But we're not supposed to do it. And there are a lot of people. I cry, I cry out for your church that you become something more. That you become all. We're not going to be perfect. We're not going to be cookie cutters. But if, if we're following you, if your people who are called by your name will look in the mirror and say, it starts with me. God, search me and find in me the things that aren't of you. If we can get on the same page and do that, and you will hear our cries, and you will heal our land, and you will be God. But it will never happen if we are content 
and finding our bread.